You are listening to an Empyrelin podcast. This is part two of M Relay's Aging, Ableism and Architecture Talk, where a lineup of designers, professionals and activists join a tag team conversation about the opportunities and pitfalls when working to make our cities more accessible. So Rose is, uh, will stay with us and we're going to invite Kerry Levier to the, um, to the platform. Rosie. So I'm calling you Rose. It's Rosie. Yeah. So welcome, Kerry. Hello. Yep. Uh, Kerry, you're an art therapist. I am an art therapist, yes. And where do you work? Um, I work at Collingwood College. But yes. At the moment at Collingwood College, I work as education support. Yes. And um, I work with kids from prep to year 12. And um, that school is a microcosm for every single thing that's been discussed so far today because we are situated at the end of Hoddle Street, underneath the Commission Flats. Um, I work with kids that are fully dependent, um, like for physical mobilities. I work with deaf children. I work with lots of kids with autism, lots of um, Indigenous kids, um, lots of kids, refugees with um, lots of people with trauma. Um, so I really feel that we need to do something about architecture to make people feel um, connected. So they're rather buried underneath this mountain of flats. We've got a lot of concrete. Any light? Um, we've got very little light. Yes. Yeah. And are the children depressed? We've got lots of kids that are depressed. Yes. Yeah. 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 I get depressed down there. <laughs> yeah. Are they depressed because they're um, refugees and their family are depressed and unhappy? Um, it's just. Um, I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you that. I, it could be also their diets. Like, um, yeah. there's lots of reasons why someone would be depressed. But yeah. I think we're all stuck together in this small confined space. So let's do something that actually builds community and inclusivity. Like, I think there's things that could be done to improve what we're doing. So if you had your dream place to carry out your work, would you have a garden? I'd have a rooftop garden. Yes. Yep. Oh, yep. so you'd be up high? Yeah, we've got we've got a third level on the school, which hasn't been used for years because they've apparently got concrete rot. But it's like, it's a high-rise building and it's, it's this beautiful big area that I can go up and have a cigarette on, but um, the kids <laughs> can't go up. But um, I was like, what a waste. Like, they could have something amazing up there, but we've got no money because it's a public school. Yes. Maybe why you've got concrete rot, it's a smoking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, sorry? It may be why you've got concrete rot. Yeah, you're going up be, smoking might, all the time. Yeah, yeah. it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> can concrete rot be I don't know, I've repaired? never heard of that before. Can it's the first time I heard it yesterday. It can be yeah. fixed. So it's a, a, yeah. Oh, there you are. That's what I'm going to say for my yeah. Minister of Planning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about how you work with the young people um, and how old are they? Um, yeah, so um, I work with lots of yeah, work with a number of them. I always get given the kids that have got the biggest issues generally to work with. Um, so, um, like I have to try and get them into classes, um, help them with their work. Um, I also toilet kids. I feed them. Um, go on school camps with them. How old are they? Um, I work from preps, kids that are in grade prep yes. all the way up to year twelve. Yes. Oh, yep. do you? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And I generally have like eight children a day. 
that I'll work with, like individually. Individually, yes. yeah. yeah. Can I just ask on funding? Because yep. that's always the the yes. problem. Yep. Um, I mean, obviously, the need to um, refurbish or expand. Um, yep. Where is your funding coming from? So the kids, the kids that like it takes a long while to get a child approved for school funding, like yep. to come in. But it is like it's policy that you cannot exclude children for any sort of disability whatsoever. Yep. That every like that's around the world, like that's how the schools are. And then like some of the kids, like they get um, judged on levels of funding. So I work with kids that are level six, which is the highest. So the school yep. will get $60,000 for that child yep. to be included. My yep. pay a year is 33000 yep. yep. Yeah, big yep. difference. Yep. Um, and like they say, like with that sort of, the funding's meant to go towards, you know, it might be specific equipment or something like that. Like, um, but it's also meant to be for training of staff, which I, I came trained. But, yeah. um, so again, I mean, with the, the pressures of expansion, you know, yeah. we're talking about population doubling in size. I mean, the yeah. it's a scary statistic. Yeah. It um, is. Yeah. yeah. So um, I know just recently, so we've got a big building thing that's happening at the school at the moment. So the government um, gave the school, I don't know how much money, but and they used it, they're building basketball courts at the school, which... You know, that's great if you're really into basketball. Not every kid at our school is into basketball. Sorry, anyone from my school that's listening. Um, but um, so, like, that's taken away a lot of the green space, or the only green space that we had at the school. And, um, like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, that must be, you know, it's a way that they can make money back, I guess. I don't know. But Why? By, by renting out the... Yeah, it'll be yeah, it'll be yeah. used by by the community. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how important do you think the green space was? Um, I think it's to so important, so important, especially like being in a city and yeah. that you are surrounded by concrete all the time, and um, it having like being able to take kids out into a garden or something is really soothing, especially when they're stressed, which yeah. is something I like to do a lot. Um, yeah, so having so to take picnic lunches out or... Just pick uh, leaves yeah. and smell them. Yeah. Like, lots yeah. of kids don't do things like that no. anymore. No. Yeah, roll around in the grass. Like. Yeah. So do you feel thing. optimistic? Um, yeah, I feel optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Do you think that, um, that the problems you are facing are being accepted by government? Um, I think everyone's speaking different languages. I think... Um, I don't think we're all on the same page whatsoever. And... Um, I, I you think we are on the same page? No, not no, at all. No. Not at all. Uh, like, yeah, I don't think it's got anything to do with money. I don't think it's got... It, it's like we all are human beings. We all have the basic... We all have the same needs. Like, we need to be well. We need to feel connected. Um, and if people don't understand those basic things and they put, you know, have other priorities, like, it's it's ridiculous. It's just stupid. We need to just peel back and go back Looking to... Looking at the basics. Look at yeah. the basics. Of survival and... Start in and education. Yeah. And, like, if people are accepted and included and feel that from an early age and you're at school where you have those connections, you we won't be having these conversations because, like, people will have a different mindset. Yes, and then they'll have be feel safe. Yep. Yeah. 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 So yep. it's such a basic thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Mm. And to see it. Yes. So. Okay. 
I was interested, I mean, when they get to, I mean, when you, they finish their schooling, yeah. there's always this difficult transition beyond, I mean, I'm working with um, very special kids just now down in Malvern, the, the children's hospice. Yep. And there's kids go in there two years old and they're still there at 18. Yeah. But there's this fear of, of support beyond 18. Yep. There's not any young adult um, support out there. Is that something you see as a, as a huge issue? Um, yep. Yeah. Yep, it right. is. Yep. yep. What, that they stay there for a lifetime, you mean? No, yeah. when beyond the schooling, when, yeah, you, when it comes to the end of their yeah. Yeah. Your, your care, um, is, uh, we don't seem to have these support systems for no. you know, the transition. No, no yeah. not at all. And yeah. even um, when I was an art, doing my art therapy training a number of years ago, and um, I did my clinical training in acute psychiatric units, yeah. And with kids as well, and um, like you could say, yeah, you get reach eighteen, and then you're out of the out of the system, sort of thing. It's sort of like fending for yourself, and then finding group homes, and yeah, um, yeah it's there's lots of difficulties. Yeah. Mm. So, do you think we should build more group homes? Um, yes, and oh, yeah, I think so. Or um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Possibly. It's such a political thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, yes. yeah. I yeah. think we should make homes cheaper so people can sort of live together. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, Ro Rosie, the, the inevitable question's coming. <laughs> You've got the planning minister's role. What are you going to do? I'm going to insist that places that accommodate children have outside space so they can enjoy fresh air, green grass, trees, and somewhere where they can lie down and look at the sky. Mm. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. So, Kerry, we're going to um, keep you on the panel, and Anthony Clark from Bloxus is going to join us. So, uh, Anthony runs a, a, a practice, a design practice, um, and... Um, Anthony, am I right in saying you had a, one of your installations was in the M Pavilion last year? Yes, the collaboration correct. with um, on Alzheimer's with um, Arup. Yes, yeah? yes. Yeah. So welcome to the panel. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hi, Anthony. Hi. Um, I did look at your website and I was really impressed because I like all the different projects and I like that it's um, called Empathetic um, Architecture, which is something I'd never put together before. Um, what is your actual process? So I noticed that all your work is like private sector, really, was it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, what is the actual process that you go through to determine what someone's needs are? I, I was thinking of the one that you made for someone that had autism. Yeah, so uh, the majority of our work um, looks at, um, well, most predominantly all of our projects deal with um, dementia or autism um, or childhood trauma, or um, we're now getting quite a few projects looking at um, ME-CFS, so chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. Um, so I suppose my, my personal interest is in um, reading and trying to understand what architecture's role or design's role can be when dealing with uh, very specific type uh, issues. Um, so I suppose the process for me is definitely about trying to understand the individual as much as I can um, and know that they're the, they're the kind of um, source of information for all of, all of my work. Yep. Um, and 
that's, you know, rather than there's certainly, I suppose, further away from using architecture as a reference and much more as, of using um, other sort of allied professionals who can teach me more about um, how I can apply my interest and, in, I suppose, education to different places. Yeah. So do you think um, what you could transfer what you've done for one person, like transfer it to a public school where there's 800 people with different needs <laughs> to develop well, some sort of way? Of like I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, we, we've tried to... Um, so the, the project that Alan talked about, um, I was I also teach design at, at university and for about five or six years I, I've been teaching um, loosely... I was teaching kind of loosely on... Um, how people deal with uh, sudden changes in life, and, and that was quite open. So it could be suicide in the family or some kind of accident that, that changes instantly how somebody needs to, to react to their environment. Um, because of that teaching, RMIT then asked me, they'd been given some grant money to run a, um, a studio on dementia, um, and that was across architecture, urban, urban design, interiors, landscape, and all that sort of thing. Um, so trying to trying to get students to understand dementia in 12 weeks was obviously impossible. Mm. But then what happened is um, university, and I don't want to kind of bag out universities, probably RMIT people here, but um, <laughs> but that the interest kind of waned quite quickly, and um, they sent me over to Germany to be part of this kind of symposium, talking about how you know other designers around the world are dealing with dementia and. I realised there's a lot of amazing people doing amazing things, generally in er, sort of the industrial design type scale. Um, so I came back full of, full of hope that we could keep going and the university kind of wasn't that interested. So I just thought um, I'll just ditch the university and go straight to the source. So I went straight to Richard Fleming, who's a, um, a guy in the uh, University of um, Wollongong and got them to give us money directly, and then we crowdfunded money to do a dementia installation project, which just talks about how um, people with dementia understand sound, yeah. um, and how that, and so, so the idea with that project was, how do we then take small amounts of information, as opposed to thinking that architects and designers can actually design for dementia when we actually have no idea what we're doing. Yeah. And the best thing to do is to try and break the complexities of these things down into smaller parts, then design for those smaller parts, learn from them, and then kind of go out in that sort of resource level. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can apply those bits of information to bigger projects, um, which we have tried very hard to do, to try and say, we're learning about these sorts of things, and if we can get a small piece of the pie to at least experiment with something on these big projects, I think we can learn a lot. Yeah. So I think um, that we, yeah, we, I think we can, but probably, you know, gradually and, and as opposed to thinking that um, we can just design a whole new school that'll be perfect as opposed to going, maybe we need to implement smaller things in already available areas just to sort of test them first. Yep, yep. Um, so that, um, what you were just talking about, is that like a sensory sort of yeah. space? Is it permanent? No, no, so it was, it was very much... Um, uh, a temporary thing, which which we then got. So we set it up. Um, it was part of the um, Dementia Awareness Month last year, um, part of the sort of installation thing. And then we then transferred it out to a university uh, where master's students were testing the um, at what point people with dementia become uh, anxious as opposed to people without dementia. So we can start to work out 
what sort of sounds, what sort of pitches, what sort of frequencies, oh what right. sort of, by doing sweat tests um, to try and work out what these sounds are, whether they're um, known sounds or a sort of mixture of sounds that, that, raise the, that raise the anxiety level so that we can start to talk about how that might impact the bigger city when architects are designing and building buildings that actually understand um, what happens that people with dementia are scared of or, or afraid of, um, of too many shadows, they're afraid of um, reflections, that sound bounces in unusual ways and that we don't really think about the impact of one building amongst, you know, a hundred others. Yeah. Anthony, yeah. do you mind just if I ask a couple of questions? Just looking at the, p the profession, we seem to be perpetually failing ourselves yeah. um, with some of this, and particularly around healthcare and aged care in particular. Um, I was talking to Brian Kidd, who was probably one of the most prominent um, writers from an architectural perspective on aged care, who sadly passed away last year, but he was um, complaining about the conversation around aged care. We went from a 1960s agenda around the huge institutional environment um, and pushed to try and change that into this small, smaller domesticated kind of landscape of aged care. And we're right back, full circle, back to the institution again, and it's getting worse. Why is it we don't seem to be learning um, from our mistakes? Uh, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, but do you think it might be to do with the lack of evidence? We don't have an evidence yeah, I, base. I think, I think totally. I mean, I think that's. Um, I think what's interesting when we, when we do these projects and we teach these projects at universities, there's no, there's very kind of um, the references. There's not, there's not a lot of great kind of references to look at, yeah. and um, there's, you know, we've we've had this, we had this, um, run in, let's say, with um, Development mm. Victoria about um, mm. about how we can take what we've learnt. You know, and it's not saying we're kind of super experts about dementia, but we've learnt quite a lot about how we can apply what we've learnt to things. Mm. And, we, and we went to them saying, you know, we've got Arup on board, we've got all these other people on board who are willing to sort of back the next stage. Um, and there's massive amounts of money being spent already, you know, so it's not, it's not sort of... Um, it's not like there's a lack of finances. There's, there seems to be a lack of anyone willing to um, take experiments and the fact that they may fail... So there's definitely yeah. a kind of... But it's um, also, I mean, look, it's an issue of terminology. I mean, I, I had this conversation recently in regards to Footscray and housing. And um, when we talk about infrastructure, so if it's roads, we find the money for it. But when we think about housing as infrastructure or aged care as infrastructure or schooling, it's a different conversation in terms of funding. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's where part of the problem is. It is a language issue. Mm. Um, but it's also, I mean, if you look around the world at who the architects that we're all familiar with in the press, who are always the ones you hear about in relation to the big, mm. you know, the, the museum mm. extension or whatever, you do ask the question of why are some of the perceived better architects around the world not working in this sector yeah. if it's the most important part of our future yeah. generations? Yeah. yeah, no, I totally yeah. agree. Totally agree. So anyway, so you're saying that it starts at university? They need to yeah, engage? Yeah, I think, I mean, oh, look, we, we so all the studios that I run through university are based on, on these... Um, these issues and one we're doing we've been doing projects this this year based on chronic fatigue and um, and it's very very uh, great to see but difficult to see how students speak to people and the terminology students use as architects um, and it's so, you know, so we get them to record or everything people with chronic fatigue come and listen to our presentations you know the lights have to be dimmed down we have to record them because we have to be able to send the presentations out to people 
and then get feedback because a lot of them can't come to us. Um, and it's very, um, you know, students kind of panic. It's very, they, they have to use very, very different language to work out how to kind of, um, you know, we're not, we're not sort of talking uh, art gallery language. So. Yeah, talking like psychology type stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, yeah, like I notice at school, like there's a number of kids that are like severely autistic or things like that or just how they use the actual school in the buildings and like they seem to run around in circles or they'll hide in a small space and they've always got a small space that they go to. So it's like if you're doing that sort of research and you're studying how people use those spaces, like we, could, we need that information to actually build according to that because it seems to be a pattern but when I just say that like I'm just saying now people are like Woo you know <laughs> she doesn't know what she's talking about yeah. but I can see it like but I don't have the data I don't have evidence to back up what I'm saying yeah like, I mean that's the that's the benefit so we um, ensure that every project that we do we work with um, anthropologists and social and sort of social scientists and um, ethnographers and lots of other people who can uh, so if we're doing a project for a family with autistic kids, then we we ensure that that um, the, the people involved in that project is very much not us, and we're kind of co continuously informed by the understanding of um, certain things from other fields, um, and then we you know that gets continuously kind of overlapped and wrapped through the project so that it's and not make it really expensive. I, I don't think they're they're not necessarily big dis big changes. I mean, most of the time they're not big changes at all, but. Um, it's a planning thing or it's, or it's talking about a material that we all know and we all use and we all love in a way that um, has a stronger purpose. Yep. So we've just finished a project for an autistic family um, and their son has a, a form of autism called sensory seeking disorder. So he needs to continuously be stimulated through his hands to a point where, you know, they, they may bleed. And, yep. and they can't, it's not, it's not about stopping it, it's about kind of... Um, it being part of his daily life. So it is about, um, you know, rubbing his hands on, on certain materials and smelling certain things and being sort of constantly activated. So I suppose it's just knowing that certain materials won't do that and certain will. Yeah. And, uh, and the planning about, um, you know, ensuring that he feels as though he has his own environment but doesn't necessarily or feels secure in safe zones. But um, safe zones can be independent and feel as though you're hidden away but still part of you know viewing by your parents yeah. so I suppose it's um their planning strategy is not necessarily but we, but we would only know that if we go through a process and have people involved that know more about these things than us like like you do you know yeah. so okay well but at that time um <laughs> Kerry you're not allowed to copy Rosie with your policy so uh, okay. what's, the, what's the big idea um I know um I didn't know I was going to be asked this question, but um, Paulie, who works here, my housemate and I, um, we always said that we were going to start a political party called There's No Party If There's Always a Party Party. <laughs> and our first policy was that everyone has to unlock their front door and get to know your neighbours. And yep. if we all did that, I don't think, I think we'd all feel safe. What's your address? <laughs> I'm not telling. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kerry. So we're going to welcome Margarita Coppolino um, to come and join us. Hi there.
So, just if you don't mind, just I'm going to steal a bit of an opportunity while I've still yeah, got Anthony, because I think that conversation could have kept going. But I'm interested. Do you think there's a fear that the architectural professional will lose its identity if it doesn't start to expand um, and work with universities in terms of research? And universities, in a similar way, are really going to have yes. to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, do. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I can reflect in the UK context and. I mean, there's a research and innovation group that exists um, as part of the Royal Institute of British Architects who are, who are really pushing this agenda. And it's something we don't have here in, uh, in Melbourne, in Victoria. Um, and I think it's an essential part of the future of, of both academia and the profession. So, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay, I'll hand over to you. Yeah. How are you? We did, oh, we did speak on the phone during the week, which was great. So I've got a list of questions um, because you, you've done a lot and you do a lot. Yeah, rather than rather than um, asking you what you do, I thought the first thing I'd just start asking questions, and then you can kind of answer them. Um, so my first my first question: ableism or universal design are popular words and obviously very important ones. It appears, however, that when applied to design, it is still based on quite strong stereotypes, and not so much about un understanding the nuances of the individual. Um, I suppose it was just my question to you: was do you um, is this something you encounter quite a lot in all of your uh, different working hats? Oh, absolutely. Um, um, I actually talk a lot about language and, and language how um, definitions, you know, I'll use it for an example of my, myself. Um, in the short subject community here in Australia, we actually say short subjects are people living with dwarfism. In America, it's actually, they use the terminology little people. And in UN, uh, sorry, uh, United Kingdom, they use the terminology restricted growth. So we all tend to use different terminologies for a disability type that we're actually identified as. So that creates real complexity when we're talking about um, issues that are, have impact on us, particularly around industrial design. Um, particularly when we've got, you know, over 250 different types of dwarfism type. So that's one. And in regards to um, building codes, the building codes are actually done to particular types of disabilities and don't take into consideration other people who are not being con uh, considered when the original building codes on disability was done. So for an example, uh, when I go to use an AT, uh, ATM, um, it, was, it was designed so that when a, a wheelchair user can use it, but I can't reach. So even when I'm on the scooter that's over there, I still can't reach because I, my arms are not long. And, and quite often when I go and hire a hotel room and, and hire an accessible room. Uh, it's not actually accessible for me because what will happen, you walk in, the shower, and the bathroom, but then everything else is still hard. Like the microwave will be at the top, all the glasses and everything. So people forget about that. And I think, you know, when you start talking to individuals, then you know, you start to look at the term adaptable built environment. What does that mean? How do you check in to make sure that you're much more adaptable to everybody? Uh, so there's been some of the conversations I've been having. 
Um, I suppose that leads on to my second question, which is about um, sort of educated language. And it's something, as I said, comes up a lot through um, university, you know, te teaching university. And, and it is something that I've um, definitely still, you know, still find difficult. So, the, again, the project that we're doing with um, chronic fatigue, I said the word, I, I, I called her a girl oh once. Yeah. And... Um, she got very defensive and, and said, you know, I want to be called a woman because when you have this condition um, and you rely on, you know, your father to do um, personal hygiene things, you kind of instantly go back to feeling as though you kind of, um, you don't have that independence anymore. So it's quite a loaded word, which, you know, is completely relevant. Um, so I suppose in terms of the, the sort of language or vocab, through all your... Um, different positions in, you know, government, local business um, and sort of board, in board positions, do you, do you think that it's progressing or do you think it's progressing in certain sectors and not others or do you think it's something that's kind of, you know, still chasing its tail and way behind? Uh, look, I think it's a really good question, you know, uh, particularly uh, I've noticed interest um, in the LGBTIQA community. Uh, the, the conversations around pronouns is becoming mm. quite strong. Uh, and I think it's really healthy because it's now getting, you know, other parts, other communities to really look at, well, how do we self-identify? And, you know, up until now, uh, identification was normally on what we call, the, you know, we talk about the diversity wheel. You either had a disability uh, from coal, indigenous background, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's what you're saying, I saw you're put into those categories. But as time's moved on, you know, people are saying, but what about all the other parts of who I am? What about all my other intersectionalities? So the languaging is starting to become much more fluent because of that. I think that's really healthy that people are going, I want to be just, uh, worked with as a whole person, not parts of me. I think to... Um the idea of ableism and whether it's um, also inclusive of sort of gender identity and sexuality and linguistic diversities and all that sort of thing. Do you think the word ableism and designing for ableism is kind of inclusive of all those things? Uh, or starting to be? If, if I can use an example of my own living environment, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of data. Um, my landlord is a social housing here in Melbourne. Um, prior to that, I was living in private rental. So up until then, I was never living in accessible uh, accommodation until I found out that I was eligible for social housing. And then realised, you know, you know, the apartment they put me in was an adaptable apartment. And one of the first things that I noticed that it was very um, sterile, clinical, um, which really surprised me, and I thought, well, where's the character? And then you go into the next apartment that wasn't the adaptable apartment, and it had life, it had warmth about it. So that told me something just on the disability, but then on the, you know, uh, sexuality side and feeling safe, um, the apartment was actually on street level, so that created not feeling safe. So when you start looking at some of those things. You've got to really think about all aspects. Um, 
we spoke, we had a brief chat during the week and you, you talked about FixPerts, which was something that you're yes. also involved in. Yes. Which from my understanding is sort of community groups that um, students, is it, that work with kind of, um, they talk about working through everyday sort of problems for, for everybody. Um, and I was just sort of wondering whether, you know, what you, th that you think it's kind of... Um, crucial that, that things happen on that sort of scale and also kind of, you know, bigger government scales? Yeah, look, I, I think the interesting... Uh, I think it's a great project. And uh, initially when it was introduced to me, uh, the first thing, and having a conversation with a couple of other people with a uh, disability, the language, just the language itself will fix something. And, you know, like, if, if building or built design or is more based on universal, then you don't really have to fix it. But so if you do the planning right at the beginning, then you spend less, less time fixing. But coming back to the comment that I wanted to say is there's never going to be an ideal scenario where everything's been included. So there are going to be times where if you use, well, how do we adapt things to individual, individual needs? Uh, what I'm excited about this particular project long term, but if you look at my uh, scooter over there, it's actually built for able-bodied people who are much taller. So when I got it, I had to pay extra money to get it modified. So uh, one of the things that we're looking at in the short touch community, everything for mobilities uh, aids are built for uh, able-bodied people. They're not built for short touch people. So if we come up, we're looking at, uh, you know, um, what do you call those, skateboards? At the moment, motorized. So you get one of those, get a thing, get a seat, and it falls up into a suitcase. So that's a design that we'd like to see happen that anybody can use then that's not just for me, it's for anybody can use it. It can be adaptable to any use. that help? Yeah, no, that's good. I'm going to get one more question. Um, my last question, I suppose, is a, is a broad question about, um, and again, based on kind of experience that I've had, is that there's, there seems to be a massive amount of money going into sort of big infrastructure projects. And I talk about Melbourne Metro because that's kind of where we've had an issue where we talked about whether... Um, we had a fact that's, that Dementia Australia and Arup, who are um, you know engineering firm, had been approached by the same person to um, look at the idea of dementia through Melbourne Metro. Right. But there's when we asked Arup, you know, out of the billion dollars, how much money in these high-end meetings was being talked about, no one had talked about it. No one had talked about dementia at all, or any or anything really, other than just sort of. Um, how do we how do we get the masses through these sort of train stations? So I was just wondering whether, you know, you've got any amazing ideas of how we um, how we get a piece of the pie, you know, to mm. sort of to sort of think about experimental approaches or any approaches where we can get part of this money to actually, um, you know, test the things that we need to test, mm. as opposed to thinking, you know, we have to kind of necessarily get specific funding specific things. It should seem like it seems to me like there should always just be a piece of the pie to to work on these things and it should never be here's this project and here's this project which is specific for this purpose but it's just like always a percentage that we can work with. 
I don't know what the question is, but you know, anyone's got any great ideas? No. Well, uh, as you were making that comment, uh, the first thing that came to mind was, uh, I think, run about back in um, 2000 when the, the Paralympics and Olympics were in Sydney. Uh, Westpac Bank was the, one of the major sponsors. Uh, so they actually had a lot of um, Paralympians uh, actually working at the bank as part of their sponsorship. And once the games were over, uh, a lot of the Paralympians were saying that the frustrations they had about getting accessible buildings uh, to buy. And, you know, like the bank kind of went, why? And I said, well, in new buildings, you know, building companies don't think about accessibility or adaptability when they're building. They just build for people in general. So what the bank did was set up a forum and they invited all quite a large number of um, building companies in Sydney to a forum at the Westpac Bank and got the, the Paralympian staff to talk about uh, disabilities, about sports, and just said, look, you know, stop thinking about people with disabilities as social, uh, on uh, low incomes, because potentially, you know, we are business clients, we can buy property and houses. And, um, you know, once, you know, some of those um, companies realise that they're missing out on extra, that they kind of went, okay. So a couple of the Paralympians were involved in um, some of the planning that happened from there, and that really changed some of the mindsets that were happening. It was fascinating. Yeah. So why can't we do something like that ongoing? Yeah. No, we, we had the same with... Um with the dementia project when we were talking to supermarkets and saying, do you actually realise how many more people you can get yeah. if you, you know, if these become sort of dementia autistic friendly supermarkets? And that's when the, you know, this sort of um, turned down the volume on Tuesdays, you know, and they realised that um, unless they start making these decisions, it's actually going to be a bad business decision. Yeah, and, that, and then everybody starts kind of, um, you know, pricking their ears up. Okay, Anthony. The big policy shift. Well, I think I think for me it, it's probably based on the last. I think yeah. it would be it would be a percentage of all projects. Kind of, um, there, there would be no specific projects, but it would just be every project has to be considered. Yep. And not necessarily just for um, accessibility, but across the board in terms of how are they all going to be? How is every project going to be suited to as many sort of diversities as possible, um, and at least kind of open that up to an experimental approach. Great. And, and, and open to it not working and saying, you know, yeah, we can actually it. learn, we publish that information and we kind of move mm. forward as opposed to this mm. slight um, paranoia about being pinned up as um, unsuccessful people or unsuccessful professionals. Yeah. Mm. Thanks very much, Anthony. Please join me. Thank you, Anthony. So, our last panel member for today, um, we will invite Tanya Davidge. Um, now, Tanya's um, also another architect, but a very broad interest um, in the built environment and particularly in the public realm, and has been leading um, some of the fight to stop the Apple Store in, in uh, Federation Square, amongst doing a PhD. You are still doing your PhD, aren't you, Tanya? Yeah, a little yes. bit. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. much. Not yeah. so much. I'll do it, though. I'm finished. Um, so, Margarita, we'll hand over to yourself. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm really interested, you know, in, in the work that you do, particularly uh, what uh, education or what exposure have you had around in, uh, conversations around intersectionality uh, and particularly with the people that you deal with? Well, um, I have a small research practice with a friend of mine, Christine Phillips, and she's a lecturer at RMIT. And I think our primary interest, the interest that kind of, you know, covers our whole practices, we're really interested in how we talk to public audiences. And I'm not talking about clients or stakeholders or consultants. I'm talking about broad public audiences who may never hire architects. How we talk to them about the built environment. Um, and I think these conversations are really important to have for all the reasons that we've been seeing earlier in the panel. Um, you know, one of my kind of fascinations or interests is that um, everybody experiences and uses spaces in different ways. And I love hearing about people's different stories and different understandings around these things because it f for me it feels like I discover the spaces that we're in anew every time I hear a different perspective on a different space. Um, so I think one of the reasons I was asked to talk today is that we've been working a little bit with Vision Australia and hopefully we'll have an installation next year um, around uh, tactile indicators. And um, so we've run two tours and hopefully the installation will be with the open house uh, program next year. But we run these tours called Sensory City Tours. And we run them, uh, we've run two of them with a woman called Jessica Timmons. And she's a mobility, a mobility and, uh, and orientation specialist at Vision Australia. And so the first one we ran was just here over at the NGV. And we have a very specific way of talking about the NGV as architects. So it's an iconic building, which means you take it in with your eyes. And um, it's designed in a very modernist way. So they, we talk about it, you know, stylistically, you know, the, the roof line is pagoda-like, so it draws on orientalist influences. It has a very platonic geometric plan. So when you look at it from the aerial view, you see, so as you can see, we're talking about looking and seeing and all these other things. Um, and Christine and I love that building because for us, um, it does a whole pile of other things like the sounds of that building change as you move through it, the warmth of the materials uh, change as you move through it. Um, and it has an incredible array of spaces and you only need to move through from the forecourt out the front with the kind of water wall uh, through the kind of great hall with the beautiful ceiling and out to the back garden which has a, um, a herb garden in it. So we ran these tour, uh, this tour a couple of years ago and we took people through it and we talked to them about how you would um, use that building if you were if you had blindness or if you um, had low vision and we uh, also talked to them about how the architecture um, affected and changed those spaces and it was a really eye-opening experience for me um, because I uh, you know I'd never really dealt with um, mobility and orientation specialists before and it was a really kind of wonderful uh, opportunity to get a better understanding of how different people and different communities might, you know, see the NGV and work in the NGV and experience the NGV. Um, so it was really wonderful. So uh, in the work that you're doing, you know, do people make comments, particularly with vision, mm. um, around, you know, because they tend to, some do have a 
service dog or blah, 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 mm. dog. Do they talk about how to incorporate space for their additional... Yeah. Well, this was absolutely fascinating to me because as architects, right, we're trained in very specific ways and there's a lot that we have to take in in our training. So when we deal with accessibility, we deal with a certain code and a certain act and we think, we assume that if we comply with this act, um, everything's going to be fine. And the reality is, is that... Um, that it's not necessarily the way that people use the city, as we've been hearing um, today, and that people with low vision and blindness actually deal with the city in very different ways. So some of them don't even use tactile indicators, which was our starting point as kind of wayfinding um, around the city. Um, you know, some people use canes and some people use uh, guide dogs. Uh, some people, and then you know, then there's obviously a combination of all all three of those things, and also now there's technology that you can use. So there's a lot of kind of apps um, with sound that can help. Um, and so what was really interesting to me is that by relying on these guides and these codes, what we're actually doing is we're closing down opportunities to actually look at our cities and design our cities in different ways and kind of design them in much more inclusive ways. Um, yeah, and so it's made me a bit more hopeful and, and much more kind of interested in the the um, the kind of details of the city and our public spaces and things like that. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I was studying on a session that the City of Melbourne did, which was uh, one of the cities around technology. Uh, mm -hmm. They did a competition to get people to design technology for people with disabilities to come into the city and use the city. Uh, and there were a couple of uh, ideas that were flagged where an app was designed on the mobile app on their mobile to show where all the accessible toilets and parking was. Mm -hmm. The one that was of real interest was that I don't know if people have know, but City of Melbourne have got all these data points. Mm. Yep. Do you know about? I don't know a huge amount about it, but I do know that I think I think the City of Melbourne make them the data that they collect, I think especially around pedestrian access, they make it accessible. Yes. So um, it's open source, which is fantastic, especially, um, this is going to be a slightly tangentially, but especially when so much of our data is becoming privatised, um, which I actually think is a huge problem. Another, a whole other topic for discussion. But um, it's open source, which means that app developers can start to use it and use it for these purposes, which I think is fantastic, a fantastic initiative. So one example of just seeing the uh, person developed an app that, uh, so you know, it's the internet where you go phone home or you know how you can get on the phone on yeah. your mobile and it phones somebody. Well, this particular app, what it did was is that, let's say I had a car, I was driving, I needed to go, I wanted to go to a particular place in the city that I knew there was an accessible restaurant and that I needed an accessible part near that. I could actually talk to this particular app and say, buy me parking that's available next to such and such address, and it just flags it. So you get in the car, and then on the way there, it, it probably tells where the park's being taken, but it shows you the next one. So if they can do that in technology and apply that, so it means that the built environment, you know, information can be shared even greater. Um, I don't know where I was going with it, but I just thought it... No, no. 
Yeah, I think it's fantastically interesting. I think in I think um, technology, when used in the right way, can enable um, a, a lot of things. And I think that's and I think this is my interest in design. I've kind of moved like I'm not a traditional architect anymore by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't quite know where I'm going next, but I don't I don't make buildings anymore. But I'm really interested because because I think I think that we need people who understand how buildings work and the complex like it's such a complex uh, ecology yeah. that needs to come together to actually make cities accessible yeah. um, and to allow them allow people to use them in ways um, you know that are dignified and I think the social the comment about um, you know we need to place an emphasis on social cities mm. like our cities being social places for people I think that's really important so I think I think we need to have conversations kind of even before we start to design buildings and design the cities around what it might mean or, or the kind of different parts that need to come together to kind of get the best possible outcome. And I think technology plays a huge role in that. Mm. Um, you know, and I think that example that you gave is fantastic. And just to, to figure out, uh, I'm noticing more and more people are using motorised scooters, just not people with disabilities mm. but other people in general. So, you know, having places where scooters can be charged up around the cities, local councils, I think that's really important. So that people can be out and about and don't have to rely on just four hours of charging mm -hmm. uh, and motorised wheelchairs. And also, you know, like if we're allowing parking for bikes and things like that, um, like I know in the social housing wire mm. is that Part of my moving in there was to have the space in the garage where the scooter could be parked instead of having to have it mm. in the apartment. Mm. So you've got disabled parking and parking, but have you got room for other tools like my motorised scooter? Yeah. Just yeah. an example. Well, I think that's really interesting. So the last tour we took was up at the new Academic Street up in RMIT, and we had um, we had a couple of uh, of Jessica's clients come along. So Lauren, we had Lauren, she um, is completely blind and we had a woman called Anna who uses uh, a guide dog. And um, we were up on the balconies at the New Academic Street, which is fantastic spaces built for students, but they've got fake grass up there and poor Anna's guide dog really <laughs> needed to go to the toilet. <laughs> and so she's like, no, no. And so then, you know, after we finished the tour, we rushed off in the state library lawns. But it makes you realise how important green spaces are in the city, not just for respite, but for all kinds of things. Um, and the city of Melbourne, for example, has very little public space right. in the actual, um, you know, in the in the grid. And it's going to be really problematic as our as our um, our population ages and as our population grows. Yeah. You know, these kind of spaces become much more important and, you know, public spaces could incorporate these things, which I think would be fantastic. Particularly where more and more people, you know, are dogs, animal lovers, you know, um, service dogs in buildings, you know, people have to physically go out of the building. As you said, you know, not a lot of green space. So, you know, I've said when a building was being designed, so what are you doing to ensure that they're... No, there are space for service animals or animals yeah. to go that's accessible, that could be in the building, it could be on the balcony or something. Yeah, and in some ways green spaces are easy ones because they're obviously immediately multi-purpose. That's right, <laughs> absolutely. 
but yeah, maybe the city of New Melbourne needs to buy back some space and get going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, look, this has been a fantastic conversation, and we could, I think, we could have gone on for another couple of hours. But uh, Margarita, I'm going to put you on the spot. So, before you hand over the reins to um, Planning Minister, what would you do? Oh, look, uh, I would definitely say that legislate that. Uh, community members uh, are actually involved in planning right from the word go. Um, That um, community members are assigned to the planning Mm. um, arm of local council. Yeah. I agree. We'll we'll conclude. You You can't copy. Okay, no, 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 I'm not going to copy. Um, I'm going to actually talk maybe a little bit then about what I see the problem with being the planning minister is. And I see the problem in terms of state planning... Um, as being, like, it's not, you know, it's that level between federal and local politics. So, a lot of what happens in terms of the built environment actually happens at council level, in local kind of politics. And what's not happening is that there's not enough conversation between the kind of boots on the ground stuff that needs to happen, and that's council and community. I completely agree with you about community. Um... And the state level, which tends to be more big picture, but I don't think it's being very strategically no. big picture at the moment. I mean, the uh, what is it? The tunnel that's oh, it's not a tunnel anymore. It's the bridge that's about to deposit hundreds and hundreds of cars into West Melbourne. That's insane, you know. Like we're not we're not building cities for cars. Like cities are not made for cars. Cities are made for people. We're building cities that are made for people. And so I suppose my platform would be is that we need to look strategically at how we plan our cities so that we remember and we always place people first in those cities. Um, And that's, you know, people of every ability and um, I think we need diverse and inclusive cities and I think that's the way to get it and we need to talk to people. We absolutely need to foster um, discussion like this one. Damn it, we need politicians here right now. We need to foster, you know, and we need to find champions in government for this. Um, I don't exactly know how we do that, but damn it. We need them. (laughs) Well, look, thank you, Tanya. Um, Thank you, Margarita. Um, But I want to just extend my thanks to all of the panel members. Um, Fantastic talk. And look, I also want to just um, thank M Pavilion because these are absolutely critical conversations to have. And there's not enough venues like this where they feel legitimately democratic and open, um, where anyone can wander in and share in the conversation. I mean, I just want to conclude by some of my observations. I mean, I still feel I've been here six years in Melbourne. I love the city, hence the reason I'm I'm still here. Um, But it is going through change, major change, and it's quite frightening um, how some of that change is not bringing about positive, inclusive um, cities. I mean, for me, housing becomes one of the, the most obvious ones to talk about. You're talking about social housing. Um, there's an alarming statistic in London and places, another place in Europe, in Berlin. Social housing is about 25% of your housing stock. Here in Melbourne, it's three. You cannot have a society with 3% social housing. It's not sustainable. It doesn't work. And until that, that, that changes, you've got a fundamental problem. So we're talking about a population that's going to double. Um, over the next 30 to 40 years, we need to sort that problem. Um, Otherwise, we'll have a very polarised context to deal with. 
in terms of the planning minister, um, I think there's some positives. I've been trying to have a dialogue with him over the last couple of years, uh, the current planning minister. Um, and one of the thing, the biggest failings, I think, is in policy is things like inclusionary zoning. We've seen it working in other cities around the world. It helps to shape the public realm. It helps to, it helps to shape um, social infrastructure. And there is an inclusionary zoning policy sitting on the desk of the planning minister's um, <laughs> office and has been for a long, long time. Eh? Yeah, well, the fact it never got launched before the election, I think, is quite telling, but it's something that probably will be launched um, in the near future. And it's so critical to get things like that implemented urgently to help to start to shape public policy and, and, and open space and social infrastructure. So, as I say, thank you for inviting me along. It's been a fantastic conversation and hopefully the start of one um, that's going to grow and evolve. Okay, thank you for all coming along. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.